Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, it is my pleasure and honor to have on Dr. Michael Collins. Dr. Michael Collins is a surgeon, and he has spent several years working as a construction laborer, truck driver, cab driver, and dock worker before getting into medical school. After his residency at the Mayo Clinic, where he served as chief resident in orthopedic surgery, Dr. Collins and his wife moved back home to Chicago, where they and most of their now grown 12 children, well, congratulations, still live. And Dr. Collins, if you would like to tell the audience a little bit about you, your, your background and life experiences and how you came to be uh, such a well-known uh, doctor. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Um, my story is not one that uh, I'm particularly proud of, not that I'm ashamed of it, but uh, I was a late bloomer. I didn't think much about what I wanted to be when I grew up as I was growing up. So I was out of college and had made no plans about what I wanted to do. So I wound up being a construction worker for several years and a dock worker and a cab driver and different things. And at some point, I finally realized that it was time to decide what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to do something other than uh, just do things for myself. So I considered being a teacher, being a priest, uh, entering Peace Corps. Uh, there are no doctors in my family, so I didn't really think of medicine initially. But when I did, it had a great appeal to me. Unfortunately, I had no pre-med background. So at that point, I had to go back and take two years of pre-medical courses uh, which was a big risk for me because I had to go do this with no guarantee that anyone was going to let me into med school. Uh, but it did happen, and I was able to get into med school. Um, finished med school, went to the Mayo Clinic uh, where I got my uh, did my residency in orthopedic surgery, and then from there, uh, my wife and I were both born on the west side of Chicago, and we came back here and have been here ever since. Um, I had always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to write, and so. Uh, when I first went into practice, I was too busy to do much writing, but I had kept notes and journals all through my career as a construction worker and as a med student and as a moonlighting resident at Mayo. So I had the material there and eventually put it all together. And I wrote my first book, Hot Lights, Cold Steel, about my time as a resident at the Mayo Clinic, uh, during which period my wife and I were starting to have a family. And so we didn't have much money. I had to moonlight a lot. So the book is about moonlighting and trying to be a resident. Uh, a couple of years after that, I wrote Blue Collar, Blue Scrubs, which was actually a prequel to uh, my first book. And it was about being a construction worker trying to get into med school. So after those two came out, uh, I was pretty busy over the next few years. And it's been my most recent book, All Bleeding Stops, was published just this a month ago. Uh, and that was a 12-year span between when I had written my second book and when I finished this third book. So it took a lot of work to put into it. Uh, but as you uh, mentioned, this is a, an issue that I wanted to raise. Uh, there's, I think it tends to get swept under the rug a little bit, the issue of uh, physician suicide and, and the difficulties that physicians have trying to accommodate their desire to help people with the understanding and knowledge that we are all mortal and everyone's going to be sick and everyone's going to be 
going to die. And doctors can't help everyone. Yes, indeed. And, and this is a, a fascinating journey. And I, I can imagine you've met such a big variety of people, especially, you know, go, going from a very working class type work. And then, you know, looking, it sounds like you were seeking for meaning and adding more meaning to your life, making some positive change. And yes, and, and, and the writing sounds like it also helped you quite a bit. Now, uh, I've received your the PDF of All Bleeding Stops, and I've started it. It is uh, a bit uh, uh, gruesome in some <laughs> ways, but uh, definitely fascinating. And now in terms of how you, you know, you, you said you were propelled also by this idea of being less uh, selfish or, or, you know, less self-centered and more uh, focused on helping others. And so was, were there also occasions when you were, you know, uh, helping others, let's say in the construction side or at the other works, like were you seeing uh, pain in the world? Were you seeing struggles? And I, I mean, your, your work ethic from, from what it sounds like is, is just incredible. Yes. Um, and I, I tell the story in Blue Collar, Blue Scrubs uh, almost exactly as the way it happened. I was a construction worker. I was a young guy who had not thought about life's great questions and, uh, and was perfectly content to be working. I had a very difficult construction job, uh, but you know, I was young and healthy and I had all the things that I wanted in terms of I made enough money to go drink beer at night and shoot pool and play games and but at some point I started to realize that that wasn't really enough and that really wasn't an appropriate way for someone like me to spend his life. So after a particularly difficult day working construction, it was 105 degrees and we didn't get to break for lunch and we were all just beat by the time the day ended. And I was sitting, leaning up against one of the trucks with one of the older laborers who worked with me. And he uh, told me to look around. And I didn't know exactly what he meant, but I said, yeah, yeah. I looked around. He said, no, I mean, look around. And I looked around and a lot of my coworkers, one of them was over in the bushes with the dry heaves and everyone else was just panting and lying in the dirt, all beat up and tired and worn out. And he said, "Um, what are you doing with your life? What are you thinking about? What's, where's this headed? Uh, And he didn't quite use those languages. He was a little bit more colorful in his choice of language, but he just said, you're pissing your life away. Uh, And he said, and I'm an old man. I can't do anything about it, but you, you have a chance to do something. And it just, that was sort of the impetus for me that made me think, well, he's right. How come he saw it and I didn't? Uh, And at that point, it's not like I immediately decided I wanted to be a doctor, but I immediately decided that I was dissatisfied with what I was doing and needed to change. So that was, so that was kind of the, you know, we, we, we find very often in life, we meet people like this. It's almost, they, they function as uh, angels in some ways, right? They, they leave a mark and something then propels us to seek within, or maybe to, you know, uh, seek for to a higher power and move forward. So was that and what, you know, that was the first, uh, you know, reality check, would you say? And how much of the, uh, like the, there was the hedonism, I guess you could call it like when with the drinking, you know, working and then the, 
the partying and that that wasn't enough so what was the what was the next step there well i had a strong family background and only now years uh ahead and looking back in retrospect do i sort of admire and respect the way my parents handled me at that point because i don't mean to make it sound like i was a bad kid i was just sort of uh drifting along and i think my parents must have cut me a little slack and said, rather than tell him every day he's an idiot, let's give him a chance to uh, figure this out for himself. Uh, and that was a big help because I had I came from a big Irish Catholic family uh, with strong family values, and that was a, also helpful for me to realize. Gee, look at all the people around me and the things that they've done and are doing and the sacrifices they make. And what am I doing? And that, as much as anything else, uh, prompted me to change. Right. No, that's that's um, that's great. And I guess some of us need to see the mistakes in practice rather than just hear them out. And now getting into, you know, after you've tried out all these different jobs, you've gotten into medicine. And um, how was that? I mean, also in terms of the people you were dealing with. I can imagine there was quite a big difference, right, between the more like working class to going into the medical field. And I mean, it can be very enriching to experience such a such a big variety of people, mental peoples and mentalities and, uh, and then going into the medical field and, you know, working and working hard and entering the entering the actual practice. So what was that like? Well, I think my experiences as a laborer uh, held me in good stead uh, because I was not intimidated by hard work. Uh, I was perfectly at home and comfortable with people from all walks of life, um, which was surprising to me. It took me a while to realize this, but not everyone is. Uh, people who uh, stay right on the path uh, towards the very might had the kind of experiences that I did. Oh, broadened me or enriched me uh, and helped me to deal with the people that uh, I would come in contact with. Yes, definitely. There's um, a lot of the bubbles that people live in. And so it's, yeah, this is why I find it so interesting that you've had all these different experiences. Now, tell me a bit about medicine and when you entered the practice, what, what did you see that also prompted you to, you know, to be more concerned about certain issues? Like you've mentioned the burnout, maybe the, the higher rates of suicide, which is seen in uh, physicians. Uh, what, what was there, what, what did, uh, let's say, what prompted you then? Well, um, I don't think there was anyone in my med school class who was happier to be in med school than I was. Um, I was just barely admitted. I think I was admitted to med school about a week or two before classes actually started. Uh, and I always joked that I think I was the last person admitted to my med school class. Uh, but nobody was happier to be there than I was. I was thrilled with the thought that I someday was going to be a doctor and the first year or two is all classroom stuff, which you're still 
at quite a distance from actually being a doctor of practicing medicine. But when we got out into the wards and seeing patients, uh, I was couldn't have been happier to to be able to do what I've been dreaming of doing for the past few years. I gradually drifted into orthopedic surgery as a choice. Uh, I didn't know initially what I wanted to be, but orthopedic surgery appealed to me because much of what we do as orthopedic surgeons is dealing with fixable problems. Uh, and perhaps it reflects some insecurity on my part, I'm not sure, but orthopedic surgeons often get a lot of positive feedback. You know, people come to us with a broken bone and we can fix it. Um, whereas people come to the doctor with certain types of cancer and the oncologists do a great deal for them, but they can't really cure the problem. And the same thing with some heart disease and diabetes and things. Orthopedic surgeons are fortunate enough to be able to, when the bone is broken, we can fix it. When the joint's worn out, we can repair it. Uh, when the rotator cuff is torn, we can fix it. So there's a lot of positive feedback that comes to um, doctors doing that kind of work. I think it's true for doctors in all uh, aspects of medicine, but I, I think many of the people who are in internal medicine uh, require, or that, that profession requires more of them. Uh, they don't get the ability to feel good about all the good they've done because it's not quite as evident. Uh, surgery, it's a little bit easier because you do fix things and make people better. But it was, I think, towards, I was in my senior year of medical school when I was assigned to a cardiology service at the local Veterans Administration Hospital, and the intern on our service committed suicide. And I didn't know him real well, but I knew him to be a good doctor and a conscientious man who cared about his work. I didn't know him close enough to understand the motivation for what prompted him to do what he did, but that changed things a lot for me. Or maybe I should say it opened my eyes more because I thought what would make a 27 year old man about to embark on a wonderful career end his life. And over the years as I've seen more of this and thought about it, I think the very sensitivity that draws people to medicine sometimes can be the instrument of their own destruction. Uh, they, they simply care too much. Right. Yeah. This is the, you know, some of the, let's say danger of being over empathic, which of course empathy is, is, uh, is a good thing. Uh, but we do see uh, in doctors also a lot of uh, addiction and issues of, of this sort. Now, you mentioned also now uh, that you were working with veterans as well. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Because I saw that, you know, in, in your your book, the, the last book, All Bleeding Stops, it's dedicated to the veterans of the Vietnam War uh, for their sacrifices. And so what, what was your experience uh, working with veterans who often, you know, in American culture, they, they are superficially, uh, you know, praised and, and put in a high pedestal. But then in practice, uh, very often we see a different reality where they're not as, uh, as valued as, as the words would, would have it, right? Yeah. Well, my experience with veterans started before med school. Uh, this, the hospital that I referred to, the Heinz Veteran Administration Hospital, uh, I had a lot of contact there when I was a cab driver. 
because the veterans would often sneak out at night and the cab drivers were their accomplices and taking them to bars and sneaking them back in. And so I had a lot of camaraderie with uh, many of those veterans. Um, the, the way veterans are treated now is a whole lot different than the way veterans were treated after they came home from Vietnam. Uh, as you well know, Vietnam was a very controversial part of our country's history and things changed a lot, and almost to a man. I interviewed hundreds, I would say, veterans before I wrote All Bleeding Stopped, and almost to a man, they decried the way they were treated when they came home from Vietnam. Um, these were poor kids, most of them who were drafted and sent there, not because they wanted to, but because they were told to, uh, and they came back to a country that uh, accused them of doing terrible things and um, and it was very difficult for them to try and assimilate themselves back into society. Whereas now, um, you know, there's a common expression that people use when they see veterans, they say, thank you for your service, which is a, a term I never heard back in the 60s and 70s when these guys were coming back from Vietnam. So they do have a, especially back in those days, they had a very rough road to hoe because they saw some terrible things. Um, PTSD was just starting to be recognized as a as an illness or as a casualty of war, and it was difficult in so many uh, fronts for those guys. Uh, the, the veterans also, I thought, I saw a parallel between them and what happened uh, in medicine too. And, and in fact, I'll just read you a sentence at the beginning. You mentioned the dedication to the book, but right before I mentioned that I was dedicating it to the doctors, I say. Like soldiers, the things we doctors see and do are often too much to bear. And like soldiers, some of our wounds never heal. Uh, and it was putting those two things together, the doctors and veterans or soldiers that prompted me to write the book. Yeah, definitely. And I, I wasn't aware that you had interviewed all these uh, veterans before. And that's that's uh, really interesting. And in terms of the commonalities you've just mentioned, I mean, from a day-to-day -day perspective, do you find, I mean, have you spoken to doctors with PTSD or have you experienced some of, some of that yourself? Um, I would not say that I have experienced PTSD. I've certainly seen it, but personally, I haven't. Um, but I have struggled with some of the same issues. You know, this, I think any young, naive, idealistic person who goes into medicine wanting to help other people at some point has to reconcile their desires with the cold, hard facts of morbidity and mortality. Uh, there are some things that we just can't help. And it takes a while for our doctor to figure out how to accommodate himself or herself to that. Uh, I mentioned in the book, there are three different physicians that I contrast with each other. One, um, McDonald coped with this issue by ignoring it. Um, he didn't let anything get through to him. He did his work and he was a conscientious good physician, but he um, extracted himself away from any emotional empathy. He just did his work and moved on. Uh, Matthew, the main character of the book, uh, was not so fortunate. Uh, he cared too much. He could not get past the fact that 
these people came to him for help. He wanted to help them and he failed. And he was unable to accept the fact that not all failures were his fault. In fact, most of them weren't. He was, I tried to make it clear that he was a good surgeon and did good work. And the final doctor, uh, Denis, uh, the French doctor, was the one who was able to care for people, but somehow accommodate himself to the fact that he wasn't going to be able to help everyone and somehow learn to accept this. And that sort of became the central, the core question of the book, uh, which is how does a doctor learn to care without caring too much? Right. Yeah. And now, and in terms, in terms of bringing, you know, bringing this awareness, what have you found to be in terms of your colleagues to be some of the healthier uh, ways of dealing with the extreme stress, you know, the, the high, cause the stress comes from the extreme responsibilities that doctors often have. And in fact, like, as you said, some of the, you know, interacting with pain uh, on a daily basis, uh, what have you found to be one of the common themes uh, throughout, throughout your career? Well, I think the, the two things that I hope to accomplish with the book, one is to make young people who are just beginning their the practice of medicine realize what they're in for. And as you recall, there's a, there's a young intern uh, in the book who is contrasted to Matthew. She's at the very beginning of her career, and she's just trying to learn how to handle these situations. And I think if the first thing we can do is to help med students and young doctors realize that the implacability of morbidity and mortality, that things are gonna happen and not all bad results are the result of the physician. Once they're in practice, I think it's important for people to be able to talk about the way they feel. Um, I think we've helped to relieve some of the stigma of um, mental illness in physicians. Uh, there was long been a feeling that a doctor couldn't seek help because if he or she admitted she had a problem that maybe that would come back and affect their practice or they would be denied privileges. And, uh, so I think it's a big help for people to be able to acknowledge their feelings and to try and find some help for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in from your own personal life, uh, your life experiences, you've also you have a, a huge family. And uh, I mean, how is how is that ba balancing the the work and the family life? Because 12 children is quite a quite an accomplishment. <laughs> I guess it, I never thought of it as an accomplishment, but I, I understand what you mean. Um, well, I, you know, my family is very important to me and it's more important to me than my writing and all the rest of it. So that's one reason why there was a 12 year hiatus between when I wrote my second book and when I wrote my third book is because I was busy practicing orthopedic surgery and I had a big family and I had responsibilities that uh, called me to uh, do things with the family rather than focused on writing or other uh, avocations. Right. And, and are any of your kids planning on going to medicine or, or are in medicine as well? No, it's funny because it's, I've encouraged them to, I mean, not that I forced them to or made them feel that they had to, 
but I am not one of the physicians. You may be aware there's a statistic somewhere that says that some high percentage of doctors, you know, 60, 70% would not advise their own children to go into medicine. Uh, and I'm not one of those. I, I strongly encourage my children and my friends' children to go into medicine. I think it's a wonderful career and I'm thrilled with the years that I've spent at it and I encourage other people to do the same. Yes, indeed. Now, okay, now in terms of your, in terms of the latest book, so was this, the All Bleeding Stop, was this uh, also a way of bringing, so you, you, you mentioned bringing awareness to certain issues within medicine, uh, bring paying homage as well to uh, veterans and doctors who are in a, let's say, a daily battlefield of, of sorts. But um, was this also a reconciliation or a reconnecting with your with your past somehow? Or what was the, I mean, what prompted you to to write it from your own life? I would say the initial prompt was the episode that I mentioned when I was a med student of the intern committing suicide. And that prompted me to almost a lifetime of interest and reflection on why do doctors commit suicide and what's, what's going on? And you would think that boy, they're in one of the most rewarding professions there could be. And wouldn't you think they'd have a much lower rate of alcoholism, suicide, but they don't. And I think there's a, but I strongly believe is that the sensitivity and compassion that calls people to the practice of medicine sometimes leaves them vulnerable to the terrible things that are seen uh, in medicine and in life. Most of society can avoid looking at uh, these terrible things or can, can distance themselves from them because they don't have to deal with them on a daily basis. Doctors do. Uh, doctors are constantly faced with the fact that terrible things happen. Children die and mothers get cancer and all these horrible sort of things that you can't keep pushing them aside and hiding from them. Uh, it's constantly thrust in your face. And I wanted to bring this awareness, not only to the public, but also to members of my own profession to, you know, just to think about the fact that perhaps some of the reason that they're unhappy is because they are trying to fix things that are not fixable. Uh, not, not all problems are fixable. And that's just a fact of life that we're all going to get sick and we're all going to die. And doctors are given the responsibility of trying to help people not get sick and trying to help people not die. And that's not always an achievable goal. Right. Yes, indeed. And, and I would say that we see in most of our, you know, Western societies, you see that the topic of death, the topic of sickness is often cast away. We want to, we have such a big emphasis on youth, on, on health. And so these things are kind of like in the back of people's minds, but generally uh, you, you know, the doctors have to deal with the reality more. And I would say that in terms of uh, doctors in general, there's two, two ways that doctors and patients can benefit from things like health uh, or sorry, medical psychology, where doctors could be 
educated in some of the topics you're mentioning and be prepared uh, before going into practice and as well to understand the immense power that, that they have over people's lives, not just in terms of, as you said, like the uh, things like surgery, okay, you can see the result, but also uh, in, in ways such as the healing process. Uh, what do you say to a patient, right? Do you, do you give the person hope or are you, you know, you know, treating the person as just another case and uh, maybe saying things that could be harmful to the patient? So I think that this, uh, this knowledge of psychology as well can, can be quite helpful for doctors in both ways, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. I think, um, and I think more and more medical schools are becoming aware of that. There's more, for instance, when I was in med school, there was no med school anywhere that I was aware of had classes in things like medicine and literature. Uh, and I've long been a proponent for that. I, as I've written these first couple books, I've spoken at a lot of med schools and I strongly encourage uh, med students to read. I think there's so much to be learned about life. And, and I've used this expression many times to them. I think I've learned more about being a good doctor from William Shakespeare and William Butler Yeats than I ever did from Watson and Crick and all the different uh, scientists who have contributed important information, but understanding the human condition is, is invaluable. Right. And this, uh, this is something that would, wouldn't be so obvious to many listeners, like the influence or the connection that you mentioned, like uh, literature and medicine. Uh, you, you're also uh, spiritually driven, I, I infer. Uh, yes. How did that, how did your uh, Catholic religion or your spirituality help you through with the career and also your long uh, process of growing and becoming who you are today? Well, like a lot of people, I think, who come from a religious tradition, you know, my, I'm all Irish and Catholic, and that goes back as far into history as anybody can remember. Every, every person in my ancestry has been an Irish Catholic. So starting out as an Irish Catholic is just because that's the way I was pushed and directed. Um, but at some point, uh, as you reach adulthood, you make your own decisions about what you want to be and what you want to believe. And that. And I have adhered to those same traditions that uh, were passed on to me, uh, in part, in a way that's not does not bring credit to myself. It's, it's almost like uh, there's an inertia kind of to it. But I have um, carefully considered all these things myself and trying to explain or justify faith is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, if, it's, if it were purely logical, then uh, almost anyone with a, an ounce of intelligence would be a believer. And that's certainly not the case. So I can't offer a whole lot of advice as to you know, why do I believe? I can tell you that I think it's certainly been beneficial to me and I have been given the gift of faith, but uh, it's not the sort of thing that I think is uh, mandatory. For example, I don't think that, uh, that you need to have some type of orthodox religion or faith in order to be a good doctor or to be a good person. 
Oh, right. Of course. I just, I just thought about it in terms of how this, how it gave you meaning and, you know, maybe in, in times of hardship helped you out to have this, uh, you know, this tradition. Yeah, it certainly did. I, there's no doubt about that. Okay. Yeah. And okay. And in terms of uh, your, your love of writing, you, you said you started taking notes uh, and writing, were you writing a, a, a journal or a diary when you were uh, doing construction? I was, yeah. I had, I had wanted to be a writer long before I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and so when I was working construction, I was sort of developing my craft. I did do a little bit of freelance journalism. I wrote for a couple of Irish newspapers. And um, when I got into med school and residency, I was almost immediately struck with the fact that there was much meaning and I was engaged in some very serious type activities that I wanted to write about. And like most medical students and residents, I spent years of my life terribly sleep deprived. And I thought, I'm never gonna be able to remember this stuff if I don't write it down. So I had little index cards in my pocket that I would write on. Sometimes I'd be in an emergency room in the middle of the night waiting for test results and I would write. So, and that helped because as I said, there's no way I could have remembered all this stuff if I hadn't written it down. Right, yeah, that's great. If you want to tell the listeners just a little bit like a, a brief uh, summary of your books, where to find them, I think it would be quite helpful. And especially the, the latest, your, your latest book, All Bleeding Stops. Well, all of it is on my website, michaeljcollinsmd.com. Um, my first book was Hot Lights, Cold Steel, uh, published in 2005 by St. Martin's Press. And all my books are on Amazon and different online booksellers. Um, the second book, Blue Collar, Blue Scrubs, was about being a construction worker trying to get into med school. And that was published by St. Martin's Press in 2009. And the most recent book, All Bleeding Stops, published by Friesen Press just in September of this past year. Um, and Hopefully that's available wherever, wherever fine books are sold, as they say. Sure, sure. Thank you. And do you have any message, you know, for aspiring medical students and uh, even doctors that may be listening? Well, to the, to the med students or the pre-med students, I would tell them that medicine is a wonderful profession. They're going to hear a lot of bad things from other doctors saying that they're sorry they practice medicine and there's too much government control and there's too much paperwork. And, and there are those things. There's malpractice and all the rest of those things. Uh, but all professions have some negatives, but the positives in practicing medicine are so, so much overwhelm the negative. So I would strongly encourage young people to pursue a career in medicine. It's, it's rewarding and it's fulfilling uh, and it's noble. Uh, to those who are in practice, I would say sometimes to take a step back and think about where you came from and where you are in life and what you want out of life. Um, medicine is certainly one of, if not the best professions to find yourself in a position to be able to help other people. Uh, and we sometimes get bogged down by the fact that there's so much paperwork to do and so much government interference and the threat of malpractice suits and all those things 
there's no question that they detract from the practice of medicine. But if we can think back on what brought us to it in the first place, I think that there's a still a great opportunity for, for fulfillment in the practice of medicine. And the last question, which I meant to ask before, uh, was in terms of, I mean, you're, you're in orthopedics, right? So how is the situation with the trust from patients to doctor? Because I know that this issue varies greatly across cultures. Uh, what's your experience with that, with patients' trust? Um, I think that the trust between patients and doctors has deteriorated significantly and probably appropriately. Um, I think that all across society, people are questioning whether or not um, others are doing what they should do. Uh, in medicine, it's especially the fact because we are meant to put aside, we doctors, I mean, are meant to put aside our own personal interests in favor of those of our patients. And I don't blame patients who think to themselves, do I really need this surgery? Is my doctor recommending it because he'll make more money or all those sort of things? Because we've seen an erosion of trust in almost all aspects of our society, and it certainly has been present in medicine. Yes, indeed. And, and I think this is uh, a really important point that you just made. And I, I think that the, there needs to be a, a, a big healing process. And, uh, you know, doctors and other, all people of professions need to, again, reprove themselves. And, you know, so we can raise social trust, because the more it degrades, the, the more issues, the more conflicts we will have. So, Yes. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you for being on the show. And I will leave the uh, books and book descriptions in the description below. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you.